Um, so if you've been keeping up with the episode releases over the past few months, uh, you will have noticed a trend develop. And I've had a few friends come to me and tell me um, that they've tended to notice that I've tended to speak a lot more about economics than they would have expected me to, um, at, at least at the beginning of the year. And I just quickly wanted to put in a word or two about why that is the case. Uh, so I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced of this, uh, that 2020 is going to go down in history as one of the most significant years in the history um, of, of the planet, not only because of the coronavirus pandemic, but also because of the responses to it, which in, which in my opinion, as I've expressed in previous episodes as well, has been far beneath my contempt and less than ideal. Uh, and so that is, in a, in a nutshell, in very you know, basic terms, why I've tended to speak a lot more about economics than I would have traditionally wanted to. Um, and we've spoke quite a bit about the fiscal element, and I just quickly wanted to stress and speak a lot more about the monetary side of the discussion that gets negated so long in public discourse. And joining me to do that is a returning guest, one of the most uh, requested guests to come back. He is back to help me discuss this, uh, Professor Stan Duplessis, who is the Chief Operating Officer of the University of Stellenbosch. And Prof, uh, welcome. Uh, my apologies to introduce you after such long-winded and circuitous an introduction, but it's a great privilege for me to talk to you as always. You know, It's great to see you and thank you for stopping by. What a pleasure to be back, Pilar. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to see you, Prof. Um, so, I mean, I just quickly wanted to get your sense of that particular introduction, because, I mean, I've really been struck by the extent to which, or, or, or l let me rather phrase it in this way, I've been struck by the rather deficient understanding of what an economy is in the mainstream. You know, I've, I've, I've been struck particularly by the dichotomy, uh, which I think is a false one, of the lives versus profit or lives versus economy dichotomy that has made the rounds in the news lately. Um, because I think it's perhaps easier for me or easier for us in a developing economy who were more acutely aware of just how intertwined the economy is with general human well-being to see where the error in that dichotomy lies. And I don't think many developed economies you know, perhaps see it as strongly as we do. I mean, having um, a huge part of our population living in poverty and a, a larger part of our population living just marginally above poverty, you know, the or what Russell Lambert described as a life uh, support machine, the economy. Um, and he was talking about the president's response to it. And this idea that you could just switch the economy on and, on and off is essentially pushing those people who are on the fringes down into poverty, which, as we well know, has you know, fatal consequences all of its own. And so that's mainly why I wanted to have this discussion. I just quickly wanted to get your thoughts before we jumped into today's conversation. This is uh, the... 30th year that I've spent studying the economy. Uh, and so I certainly agree with you that it is a wonderfully interesting but broad subject. Mm -hmm. And and it is not a limited theme. So I, what I want to agree with you is the idea that somehow there's our economic life and then there's the rest of our life and that we can make these trade-offs between our health and welfare as a person versus our participation in the economy. I, I certainly agree that that is incoherent dichotomy and and I believe it was due um, due to poor policy advice the policy advice that the that the president received last year pushed him into a position where he was and, and that we heard already in the very first speech that he gave as he announced the national lockdown he used the words that this is an existential threat to the mm. country and of course, it was sincerely meant, and it was meant to express the gravity of the situation. Mm. But the difficulty with existential threats is it's at one extreme end of the spectrum. And it's at such an extreme end that almost any 
subsequent action is now justified. Right. Because against an existential threat, nobody can, can, can ask whether the response is proportionate. Mm. Um, because there is no proportionality in an existential situation. Um, and, and I think that already was the way that the situation was framed initially as existential meant you could justify any uh, degree of, of intervention in the economy um, without, I think, asking yourself what the consequence of that will be and without asking yourself, what is my exit strategy? <laughs> and, and you're certainly right. Um, it, we've never stopped an economy before, not in peacetime at least. So we have some experience of this in war. Economies get stopped in a total war. Um, and what we saw in, in the data that happened in South Africa and elsewhere is if you stop an economy in peacetime like we did through um, regulation, the outcome is very much like total war. Mm. Uh, we had a decline of, you know, in the order of uh, 7 to 8% of GDP in real terms last year. Those numbers are only ever seen in war. Sure. Uh, the, uh, in, in peacetime, the largest ever decline that we saw in this economy is in the order of, of minus 2%. Sure. Um, so it is, it is entirely out of the realm of the experience of peacetime economies. It, in fact, what we did was to have a, a war outcome in peacetime due to a regulatory response. That was uh, a very good way of putting and, it. And I think it was because the question was framed in an extreme way um, initially, um, and as a consequence, the subsequent decisions were all taken against a backdrop that forced extreme responses instead of proportional responses. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that's a very insightful, at least segue, into the conversation that we're going to have. But, but quickly before we go there, I just... Uh, you've obviously mentioned the, um, the the effects on GDP that the um, you know lockdown regulations have had. I mean, I've heard people push back against those of us who, and I assume you're in this camp um, of people who rejected those extreme lockdowns, at least in the manner in which they you know were enforced, who say that we are unsympathetic and unempathetic um, to people's lives, and that we choose to you know, prioritize numbers and what it looks like on paper, what's going on in our economies and, you know, in, in our countries. And we choose to protect economies, or as Julius Malema says, we choose to privilege profit over, you know, the lives of people. And I think that that's perhaps, you know, signifying, it's, it's a signal, you know, just to how poor, for lack of a better word, our education has been around the subject of economics in particular, where we think that, you know, citing GDP figures is in some way negating the personal um, you know, experiences of people. Do you perhaps mind just I, I certainly agree that? with you on that. Um, it, it is poorly understood. It is the GDP data is seen as depersonalized, whereas all that GDP really is is a summation of the total value of the activity of the people of South Africa. Right. And to the extent that it declines by 8%, it means collectively our activity has collapsed. Mm. Um, and that's what we saw. And what happens if our activity collapse? It means not just that our incomes decline. It means the businesses at which we used to earn our income is facing collapse. And we certainly saw that last year. We saw very many businesses uh, go out of business. And it's not simple to restart a business once you've gone out of business. And so it doesn't quickly come back. It's not, it, uh, it, this is not like a rubber ball that you bounce and that the moment the crisis is over, you're, you're back at the level that you started off. You, you, you incur permanent damage right. when you have that level of decline in economic activity. 
and when you ha- when you have bankruptcies, uh, which simply eliminate uh, companies from the economy, and and they can't return. So others mm. might eventually move into their space. The economy is a dynamic place. They others will take that place over time, but but the the damage is permanent for those that are that are lost, um, and they face severe transition costs to move into something else. Mm. Uh, and so I think if we have a real if we have a perspective that's welfare based, we should never be uh, callous when we hear of GDP declines of that magnitude. It is a, it is an immense welfare crisis when yeah. you see that. Yeah, yeah no, that's very accurate. And I think just to touch on the point that you made about you know the elimination of companies from existence, so to speak, um, Svia sent me, and I mean, it's really sad that he cannot join us today. Um, he sent me um, a, p- a few months ago, I can't quite remember when it was, but he sent me a list of, um, oh, it was a study that had in it a table that showed the number of zombie companies that are in existence today. And I, th- I think it's a very you know, interesting way of bringing it into the discussion, seeing as you're talking about companies that have been driven out of existence. So SVS sent me um, that study that showed that the number of zombie companies that are in existence today is at an all-time high. Uh, and perhaps you can explain what a zombie company is when you uh, respond to this question. But what struck me, um, I, th- I think it was in the summer of last year, I can't quite remember when it was, but the, for the first time in England's history, their GDP had been announced to have fallen by, I believe it was 21% or something ridiculous like that. Um, but, but you can correct me. I'm not sure I have the figures correct there. Um, but, but this was announced, I believe, on the 19th of August last year. Um, and this was at a time when the market, I believe, was, well, was uh, expecting an 8 to 10% decline. And they were hit with a 21% decline. And there I was sitting there thinking, okay, well, what would happen to the stock market at this point? Um, but very interestingly, 15 minutes later, it rose by 3%. And there I was sitting thinking, well, isn't this interesting? Um, this defies almost everything that I've learned in economics. Um, it, it seems as if the investors um, had expected the stock market to rise again. Um, and would this, at least in part, explain why these zombie companies are in existence, at least in record numbers? Um, I know it's a pretty long question, but I just really wanted to get here before we touch on the foundations of this. We'll have to check with SV what he means by a zombie company. Yeah. I would understand by a zombie company is a company that's a, that's a, one might say, an incorporated institution that isn't currently functioning, um, but that is, we, we keep it alive in the anticipation that we might in the future resuscitate the, the activity of that company. So that, that, that's what I would think of as a, as a company. So you keep, a, as it were, a, a corporate structure alive. Now, it... It only ends up in that because something had badly gone wrong. Yeah. So this used to be a vibrant company. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, the business has declined. You strip out the costs uh, and uh, you strip out the activity of it and you keep it at a low level uh, just alive so that you can hopefully resuscitate it when, when demand for the product returns. Um, th- that's what I would think of. And I don't know whether those companies are at a, at a, at a maximum. What, 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 what I meant when I answered the previous question was, I was concerned about the actual bankruptcies. Yeah. The companies that weren't even zombies anymore. Yeah. Companies that had, that had gone out of existence, and we saw that in the hospitality sector in South Africa, for example, sort of across the economy. Um, these, these are companies that, that, used to, that used to provide a useful service in the economy, they employed people, and those companies are no longer there. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it doesn't mean... Like, as I mentioned to you, it doesn't mean that there won't be a new company that will move into that space and that will re-employ some of that people, but after a transition cost, and those costs have a welfare implication. 
Right. Uh, it's not costless. It's only on a on a blackboard. If I do this in an economic model, that the transition from one state to the next is costless and and frictionless. Yeah. In the real world, there's friction, and that friction has a welfare implication. Right. Um, so I think perhaps um, th that points to how poorly framed the question that I've tried posing was, because where I was getting at was you know the um, the liquidity that has been pumped into the yeah. uh, stock markets. Um, so, so the reason I brought up that example about the Bank of England or, or the, uh, the London Stock Exchange mm. um, is because it seemed to me that the investors were anticipating that the stock market would be fueled with liquidity as it was. Yes. Um, and could could it not be, because it seems to me that this is the case, that we have now a system or a financial system that is no longer kept alive by private profits, mm -hmm. you know, capital accumulation and the reinvestment thereof, but by one that, you know, is in desperate need of central bank money to remain in existence. Um, and I think that instance in England pointed very strongly to this phenomenon. Yeah, so let me, I mean, you're right that, that the particular example that you mentioned is a surprising one. <laughs> and I can. Uh, I started my career as an economist in the financial sector in London, uh, and so part of my job was to comment on market movements like this. And so it, I, I can at least tell you this as as the opening bid for my answer that on a daily basis, um, it, it it isn't. Um, it, it is never the case that you can on a one for one basis map the actual market movement to what your what you think of as the underlying economic development. And, and it's partly because the, the frequencies of these events unfold at, at a different rate. So uh, the economy is what I'm going to call a, a low-frequency event. The economy doesn't quickly change from one state to the next. It evolves over a period of quarters and, 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 and years. Uh, and the business cycle itself is a sort of 10-year-long event, and the growth trajectory is an even longer event. So I'm, I'm going to think of the economy, the macroeconomy, as a kind of slow-moving, low-frequency event. Asset markets, on the other hand, are your archetypal high-frequency events. Right. So it's the, the, the here you get developments over the period of nanoseconds. Um, and in, in all aspects of social life, you should always be careful to map um, high-frequency outcomes and low-frequency causes in a one-for-one -one manner, sure. because you, you're going to be you're going to be surprised a lot of the time. So what you need to do is ask yourself: um, Can I somehow extract the low-frequency information from the asset markets and compare that with the low-frequency information of the economy and see if we can find the logical outcome that we expect? Sure, because that that's really the version of the question you must ask. But but it, because if you ask the, the, the high-frequency question from the low-frequency data, you're going to be surprised. Sure. Um, and if you allow me a, a small footnote, and I, perhaps the listeners will find this interesting. It, it is a really interesting result in economics, and we call it overshooting. The, the fact that asset markets are high-frequency and can move very quickly in, and can go up and down very quickly is, is actually a part of the adjustment mechanism of the economy. Because as I mentioned, the, the real economy, this underlying process of production, is slow moving. Right. And that means when a big shock hits the economy, that initial adjustment usually occurs on the asset markets first. Mm -hmm. And so you get extreme movements in the asset markets in what we call overshooting, as, and then the, the, the underlying economy starts to adjust to these signals slowly. And over a period of time, the 
the correct information is priced both into the asset markets and into the real economy. But it's not atypical to see exaggerated movements and even surprising movements, what we call overshooting. So it could, you know, we, we'll have to look at the particular data point that you mentioned. It is, for example, possible in this particular case that the previous day the stock market had declined by an exaggerated amount. Now the GDP data comes out. It's dreadful, as you mentioned. It's a terrible number. But it's not as bad as the number that was priced into the market the previous day. And now the market overcorrects in the opposite direction. Um, now, to be able to get a rational analysis of that market movement, you would actually have to look at the time series over, a, over an extended period of time, extract the low frequency data, and see how that matches. But okay, but that, that, that is just, what I've just now said is speculation on my part because I didn't see the data. What I, what I, want you, what I wanted to come back to is your interesting question that the central bank played a role in this. Mm. And I think it's true. Again, not knowing the particular data point, but certainly because I know how the cent how central banks have responded to the entire pandemic event, and and there there has been a very dramatic um, introduction of liquidity into uh, into economies to support economies throughout the pandemic. So I agree with you. And and then where does that go? Well, um, I come back to my overshooting observation. The first place the introduction of of central bank support go will be in the asset markets. Yeah. So you'll see the impact first in asset markets and you'll see it on the stock market, you'll see it in the bond market, actually typically first in the sure. bond market, where because it's typically in the bond market where the central bank intervenes and then it and then the spillover is from the bond market into the equity and currency markets and then subsequently into the property market. So so that's the sort of typical chain of transmission that you expect to see. Um, and uh, if you ask me other things equal, did central banks over the course of the last uh, almost two years contribute to a rise in stock markets internationally despite the fact that economies took a massive hit? Then my answer is I'm sure of it. <laughs> I'm sure it's true that they that they caused part of the uh, of the strong rise in asset markets. And um, in a moment we can talk about the precise mechanism that it that it that um, explains it. Um, but I agree with you, and I, and I agree with you that I think we we need to ask critical questions about whether that was in fact. Um, the correct step to take and what the consequences are. I mean, I'm, I'm concerned about lots of consequences. Uh, we, we're here to discuss the perspectives of, of, a, of a particular book. I've got some additional concerns. One of the additional concerns that I have is when central banks introduce this liquidity because they don't introduce it in the form of notes and coins. They're not literally printing money. Mm. They're introducing it in the form of uh, central bank liabilities, which typically go into purchasing securities on the bond market and central banks now own some proportion like uh, a, or bonds in equal value to something like 40 or more percent of sure. uh, developed country GDP sure and and that is serious because that that starts to question whether the prices on these bond markets are still market determined mm. Um because if it's the case that a policymaker now owns such a big portfolio of these assets, um, then we do have to ask whether the yield as it's priced on a daily basis, which is meant to reflect the underlying risk of these assets, now really does reflect market values or is it a, is it a policy outcome? 
Um, so I, th I think you're right to say that there are, there are serious concerns uh, about the consequence of central banks um, uh, intervening in this way. Um, but I wonder whether it would be interesting for us to at least uh, try to try to argue why, if, if, we, if, if we were seated differently, if we were seated at uh, the European Central Bank or the Federal Reserve Board, and we were asked to explain why they intervened, I wonder whether it would be useful just to speculate on why we think they did it. Yeah, that would be a very interesting perspective from which to look at it. Um, and I think the story starts in, uh, in the global financial crisis. So back in 2008, and for the first time in the post-war period, we faced a, a threat to the financial sector that was, at least in the developed world, comparable in magnitude to what we saw um, in the, at the beginning of the Great Depression in the, uh, in the early 1930s. And uh, e economists are, I, I would say, the, the consensus interpretation of the causes of the Great Depression places a large burden of responsibility on the Federal Reserve Board for not intervening to support the banking sector when, the, when banks started to collapse in about October of 1930. Um, so they, even though they had the mandate to provide what we call liquidity to illiquid but solvent banks, they stepped back. They said, we've already reduced the interest rates, we've done enough. This led to a run on banks, the run on banks led to a bank collapse, and the bank collapse was the eve of the Great Depression. Yeah. And it was a very hard lesson for the Fed. Um, and because the Fed had learned that lesson, when we saw Lehman Brothers collapse in, in September of 08, one of the things I knew is that they would not allow the banks simply to collapse. Yeah. Um, Ben Bernanke, who was at that time the chair of the Fed, was himself a scholar of the Great Depression and, and acknowledged this lesson of the Great Depression. So we knew that they were going to intervene massively. Now, one of the things that you and I might disagree about is that I think it was entirely appropriate for the Fed to intervene massively to prevent a meltdown, a complete financial meltdown in 08. Mm. Now, that is the 08 story. What happened subsequent to that, of course, the fallout of such a large financial crisis is a very big recession internationally. That's why we sometimes call it the Great Recession. So not the Great Depression, but the Great Recession follows the financial collapse of 08, and, and, and policymakers need to respond to this. Great calls for them to respond. And they've already intervened massively to support banks in the immediate moment of crisis, and uh, sometimes we call that QE1, quantitative easing number one or episode one. Yeah. Um, but soon that's followed by QE2 and QE3. QE infinity now, at this now point. It turns out, it turns out that the motivation for QE2 and QE3 is completely different from QE1. Mm. QE1 is what we call the lender of last resort function of the central bank. It's their responsibility to prevent financial meltdown. QE2, on the other hand, is business cycle policy. Economy is in recession, and you're trying to use the balance sheet of the bank to get the economy growing. Mm. Now, these are qualitatively different policies, even though the policy action might look comparable, because in both cases you use the balance sheet of the bank to buy bonds to drive down long-term interest rates in the in in the hope of affecting asset market conditions. But in the first instance, you're 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 within what I'm going to call the classical mandate of the central bank. In the second one, you've become a 
a, an, a, a, bus, a, a, a macroeconomic policy maker and it's, an anti it's a business cycle policy. And it turns out we have much less evidence for the uh, um, usefulness of QE2 and QE3, but now, we've, now we have grown into the habit. So over a decade, we've been grown into the habit that the central bank's balance sheet is going to be a part of yeah. the macroeconomic toolkit. And when the pandemic hit, the hands immediately go up and say, so what are you going to do with your balance sheet? And they did so massively yeah. last year. Yeah, and, and I think that was a very, very insightful um, you know, speaking segment because wh what I want to talk about now is uh, why I wouldn't necessarily agree with the point that you thought we would necessarily mm. disagree on. So we had the conversation earlier on in the year, and I think you satisfied, you satisfactorily convinced me um, of the role of the central banks in at least you know, financial crises. Um, but, but what my mind wasn't changed on was the fact that, you know, it seems to me that it is the responsibility of a central bank to fix a crisis that a central bank caused. Um, so for instance, we talk about the, you know, the, the, the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So as you and I would agree, the Great Depression was at least in part caused by the Federal Reserve. And so it was the responsibility of the Federal Reserve Board to solve that crisis. I think the 2008 crisis, as we, mm -hmm. as we spoke about earlier on this year, I also think was caused in a very, very significant part degree by the Federal Reserve Board. And so it was their responsibility to solve that crisis again. But the question that I almost have is, without a system that makes it possible for central banks to manipulate the price of money, there would not be a need for central banks to then come in and solve a problem that they themselves created. And this is where I want to talk about you know, the soundness of money and perhaps go back to okay. primitive monies to talk about sure. and, and break it down uh, and, and talk about what exactly we mean by this. Because it seems to me um, sure. that we have a great deal to learn from people in the past um, because money is, is a natural occurrence. There wasn't a central board that came together and said, well, let us design this uh, for commerce, etc. People naturally developed money as a medium of exchange and it's developed etc you know over the course of the years and i think what people have understood over the years in their use of money as you know shells cattle salt etc whatever it is that they used as you know you know money at that time was that money needs to be sound and it was interestingly uh, the book that you and i are talking about today called the bitcoin standard which i would you know really really recommend for people um this the second chapter talks about why we evolved out of primitive monies and why they were adopted in the first place. Um, and it seems to me that it makes a pretty convincing argument for why sound money is the only kind of money really um, that, that, that exists. And a money that is easily attainable is no money at all. Um, so w would you perhaps be able to speak to that and talk about why we developed money from barter economies and why that was uh, you know, just completely untenable and unworkable, why we had to develop money uh, and how sound money and the concept of sound and unsound money came about because sure. I think it's very, very useful in the sure. conversation going so, forward. So th th there are a couple of questions there. So let, let, let me break that down for a moment. The first is I want to agree with you that we know of almost no human society in which some form of money did not emerge. That, that is true. In fact, let me give you an interesting example. We create artificial communities in multi massive multiplayer online games. Initially, the design of these games precluded money. Um, nowadays, I think you know that most of them facilitate it. They just create some sort of token money inside yeah. the game. Yeah. Uh, this is a lesson that they learned. And the lesson that, they, that we learned more than a decade ago is if you create a community like this, in an, even in an online environment, 
and you don't allow the characters uh, some formal money, they will invent something as money in the game. Mm. Um, and and so eventually the the designers of these games simply facilitated that. Uh, but it was because the moment you've got a, a community that interacts in some way, the the need that Adam Smith called our propensity to truck, barter, and trade. It's the wonderful phrase of Adam Smith, which is just a way to say that we like to cooperate. Yeah. So whether we cooperate in a game to attack some other characters uh, or to or to dig up or construct the city, in whatever our activity is, it turns out if there is the capacity to cooperate with other people, we'll find a way to do so. And if we want to cooperate with other people in uh, we, we need to find some way to make it a mutually beneficial activity. And then money becomes a very important part of it. So now I come to your question as to, as to um, what money or what, what kind of social uh, good money is. Because it is a, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's a, what we call a, um, a social concept. Uh, sometimes it's a physical concept. As you and I know, we, we now often work in a cashless world, but we still work with money, so the social concept is still there whether you can hold it in your hand or not. Um, but what the role of money is, is to it's, it's the first thing to say is, is money is, is an asset in the economy. Mm. That's an import, for me, that's a really important first principle. It's, if you make a list of all the assets in the economy, one of those assets will be what we will use as money. But it has other characteristics too. It's, it can function as a unit of account. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an asset in which we can express the value of all the other assets. Um, and it is a, it is a, um, a value, that it, is, it is an asset that I can also exchange with you. So um, if it's an asset that, it's very, that is very difficult to exchange, um, and a non-homogeneous asset would be an example of it. It's very difficult to have um, Rembrandts as money. You've got no two Rembrandts look the same. They're different sizes. Uh, they're of actually different uh, um, origins. Some of them might be Rembrandts. Others might not. It's very hard for us to express the value of a house in terms of Rembrandts. Uh, Ununiform. Um, so exactly. So they. So so what we want is we want an asset that we can that we can express in some sort of homogeneous way, uh, the value, um, and then of course we want money to have to have a stability. It must be a store of value, and to be a store of value, at a minimum requires that the value of the particular asset itself must have a, a considerable stability. Now it doesn't mean that the value will not change at all. It doesn't mean it's unchanging. But if I take you back to my my previous comments about frequency. Um, the, the, the values of assets in the economy will change at various frequencies. And uh, I think I mentioned to you that um, our highly liquid asset markets have very high levels of frequency. So the, 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 the movements are at a very high level, at a very high frequency. Um, money needs to be an asset that does not have high frequency changes. Uh, so it needs to... To, what, to the extent that the, that the value of money changes, it needs to be at a low frequency. And why is that? It's so that it can do this job I described a few minutes ago, that you can express the value of everything else in terms of the monetary asset. Right. If money itself was subject to high frequency changes in its value, it would be pointless to try to express value in terms of it. Um, so these are the sort of features uh, um, of money that emerges and, and, and 
you're right. It emerges in all societies, uh, at least that we know of, um, and it almost always have these same characteristics. Now, uh, from an anthropological perspective, the differences are tremendous. I mean, you find you find shelves, you find all sorts of uh, items used for value, and alternatively, you find tokens. So it's not just that it's something physical. Sometimes it is a pure token, and if you read your Marco Polo, uh, you'll see that uh, that the Venetian discovered in the um, uh, in, at the court of the great Khan in in uh, what was then Mongolia, part of what is today China, uh, he discovered pure paper money, um, and he's and, he, and it's a marvel for him. So he describes the episode where he sees it, them being made, and he says how marvelous it is that you can print piece of paper and what turns it into money is a stamp on it that says this is on the order of the great Khan mm -hmm. worth a hundred units yeah. um, uh, and, and so we've seen various forms of money arise over time now to come to your question as to what, what is sound money mm. so sound money is money that, that will be able to satisfy the requirement of being a store of value and for a store of value, it's I need to rely on the fact that if it's if I can uh, express the value of that money today in in the form of a hundred units, and if I look forward a year, two, three, four, or a decade into the future, I must not expect that value to be dramatically eroded. If it is dramatically eroded, it's a poor store of value, um, and unfortunately. The history of money is a pretty discouraging history. Um, if if you're in if you're in the South African case and uh, um, you know our our current monetary system, the rand emerged in the 1960s, and so if I take a hundred purchasing power units in South Africa in about the year 1960, so I say um, it's purchasing power of a hundred rands in 1960. Bit artificial because the rand only emerged shortly thereafter, but but we can make the adjustment. So it's 1960. It's 100 uh, purchasing units, 100 rands worth of purchasing units. Now we've had subsequent inflation, and inflation is the process by which money loses its value over time. Um, and if I ask you how much of the hundred do you think is left today, as a as a guess, as a ballpark. So we started with 100 rands worth of purchasing power in 1960. What's left today? Uh, and the answer is less than 1%. Oh, my word. Um, now, it turns out that's a, it's a bad outcome. It's not a particularly sensational outcome in the world. If we had this discussion in Turkey, then I had to go to the fourth or fifth decimal place to Jeez. find a number at all. Um, and in the best cases internationally, the, the purchasing power is, as, is about what's left now is about... 25 to 30%. That's the best case internationally over this period. Um, so, so it's true that the history of money is, is from this perspective, pretty discouraging. Um, but I also want to put a footnote there. It's not uniformly bad. Most of, the deep of, most of this inflation in the RAND occurred before 1990. So if I did this experiment and I... I, I broke this 60-year period up into two 30-year periods, then the most dramatic part of this decline is from 1960 to 1990. 
And then we've had a period of much less dramatic inflation since then, still too high. And I think you, you might have heard the governor of our Reserve Bank recently speak here at a seminar in Stellenbosch, where he argued that he himself says that the, the target rate for inflation in South Africa is too high. Um, he's the first governor, by the way, to, at least since Dr. Stahls in the 90s, to argue that our our objective should be a lower inflation rate than what, we, what we've realized over the course of the last 20 years. Uh, I admire him for it and I agree with him, um, but it is dramatically better than the situation we had in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, and, and so sound money is one which holds its value over time and uh, much of modern monetary history was pretty unsound money, but not uniformly so. And I'm certainly of the persuasion that we've realized periods of sound money um, also in recent decades. Would this include the gold standard? Um, well, so that's, I mean, that's an earlier period. So, okay. so you're right, and I would say that the gold standard was a period of sound money, but that's much earlier. Now we're talking about the okay. mid to late 19th century, I see. pretty much to the run-up of the First World War. That, that's the period of the, of the classic gold standard. Uh, and indeed, that was a period of, of sound money. It was a period of other problems. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. we can discuss that because sound money is not the only thing we want to achieve. Right. Um, but certainly happy to agree with you that the value of money was well protected under the classical gold standard. Yeah, and I think it's perhaps worthwhile also stressing what, what happened in instances where you know, the soundness of money was eroded or you know, the, the content was debased, so, so to speak. Because there are also some very bleak uh, you know, pictures that we can paint about societies that have completely debased the content of their currencies. Um, and I would include, of course, the Roman Empire, um, which you know, fell into war when the uh, currency was debased. I mean, there are also very uh, precarious instances of, say, the, the First World War, the Second World War, all of which could be traced down to, uh, at least in part, some monetary matters that were at the helm at that particular point in time. I mean, we've seen some, you know, totalitarian leaders that have emerged in times where, you know, sound money was done away with. Um, so the, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Maos, um, you know, all of these people. Is it a coincidence, I suppose, is the question well, that I'm asking, <laughs> um, that a lot of these figures emerged in countries that had unsound? Money? I think money is an enormously important part of society. So I, I'm of the, one might say, I'm one of those people that's going to give you a large role for money in the unfolding events of society. And uh, you mentioned an interesting example because, of course, we should suffer no doubt. The Second World War is caused by a lunatic dictator yeah. who w launches a, 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 a crazy and, and the worst war in history. So that's, the, that's what I'm going to call the proximate cause. Yeah. What is the ultimate cause of it? How is it that somebody like Hitler can assume power in a country like Germany? Well, now we get to more interesting economic questions. So right. in the aftermath of the First World War, a particular peace is imposed uh, on Germany, treaty and uh, it's the Treaty of Versailles. Now, um, economists foresaw that one of the potential outcomes of the Treaty of Versailles is hyperinflation in Germany. And uh, you know, John Maynard Keynes, who gets pretty um, badly treated in the book that we're going to discuss this <laughs> afternoon, very correctly foresaw that. At the, as the treaty was being written, um, he foresaw accurately that the, the kind of burden that was being placed on Germany is likely to lead to the kind of 
financial decisions by the German government, which would lead to hyperinflation, which would have dis tremendously disruptive consequences um, uh, uh, within German society and could indeed lead to demagogues assuming power. So he wrote this in a brilliant book called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which made him a very famous economist in the early 1920s. It's a brilliant book, and I can I, I want to encourage all our listeners to, to uh, go get a copy. It is a fantastic read, and it is one of those cases where an economist really nailed it. Mm -hmm. He really got it exactly right. And he uses a brilliant quote from Lenin. Uh, uh, he quotes uh, um, V.I. Lenin uh, saying that the surest way to destroy capitalist society is to debase the money. To deport um, the currency. Yes. So, so that is... Um, it's a, it's a wonderful insight. Now, of course, what we're talking about there is hyperinflation. And hyperinflation is, an, is in this spectrum of, uh, of inflationary events, which you start, you can think of a, a very modest decline in the value of money on a year-by-year -year basis. And then as this spectrum moves further, you go to what we think of as really extreme inflation. And hyperinflation is when you get to at least a 1,000% inflation per year. Um, and really, it can go very high after that. I mean, we've had some of the sensational episodes. That the, the German inflation of the early 1920s is one of the highest on records, but not the highest on record. Um, and, and it's certainly the case that it destroys our ability to work together uh, in the economy because the asset that we used to facilitate our truck barter and trading, as Adam Smith used to describe, is disrupted. Now we are spending all of our time trying to manage our assets because we can't rely on money to do that for us. Um, and, and so the, the economic relations are entirely disrupted when you get to hyperinflation. Now that's the extreme end. And in the case of Germany, it didn't lead, I mean, hi, the, the hyperinflation of the 1920s doesn't lead in a straight line to the Second World War. But what it does create is it creates the kind of economic circumstances where an extreme populist uh, party can can emerge, uh, and then that's Adolf Hitler, and he in fact tries a coup in the early 1920s in that immediate environment. It fails terribly. He's put in jail. He writes his mad book in jail, um, and 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 so when he emerges from jail, the um, the the German society is already beyond hyperinflation, but it's in dire it's in dire shape. And the um, political elite are also in dire shape, and and he exploits the political weakness of Germany in the late 1920s, and eventually he gathers about 30 percent of the votes, uh, and that's the maximum he ever gets. So we shouldn't also we should also forget or not forget that he never gets more than a third of the votes of Germans. He shuts down the political system by the time he gets to a third, um, and it's they they never test it again. Um, but so I think the hyperinflation and the economic disruption is part of what creates the environment for somebody like him to emerge, and and the hyperinflation itself is a cause of the particular uh, peace that was imposed at the end of the First World War, and the economists saw it coming. So it's one of our finest moments. Mm. But but it really isn't the only case, hey. Sure. Um, 
there's, there's a very interesting paragraph that I flagged in this book, um, of page 152. It says, and I quote, it is no coincidence that when recounting the most horrific tyrants of history, one finds that every single one of them operated a system of government-issued money, which was constantly inflate, inflated to, to finance government operation. This is a very good reason why Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler, Maximilian Robespierre, Pol Pot, Benito Mussolini, Kim Jong-il, and many other notorious criminals all ruled in periods of so unsound government-issued money, which they could print at will to finance their genocidal and totalitarian megalomania. So it, it's not unique to uh, Germany or the Weimar Republic, as it was called at the time. It happens quite frequently, actually, in instances where we've got an unconservative a group of people at the helm of the monetary regime. Is that an unfair characterization? Well, it's, it's a part of the book I don't agree with. Mm. Uh, it's The argument moves too quickly and too uncritically to lump together Robespierre and Stalin. Sure. <laughs> and and uh, certainly I am not persuaded that there is too much that is similar between Robespierre and Stalin. Sure. Uh, Robespierre had no control over the um, over the nascent Bank of France, such as it was. Um, his impact was highly localized uh, within Paris. Uh, it's a completely different story from a 20th century communist dictator that commands tens of millions of people and is able to, to mobilize unprecedented res resources with the assistance of the West. Because we mustn't forget the ability of Stalin to fight the war depends crucially, on the constant stream of resources supplied by Britain and America um, during the war. Um, and, and I don't think monetary mismanagement is any part of the Stalin story. Um, so Stalin operates in a, in a bizarre, it's from our perspective, modern perspective, a bizarre communist society, centrally planned, profoundly malfunctioning in terms of the production decisions um, and war is one of the few things that, that they can do well. And it is because war is such a focused activity. And you need to produce tanks and fuel at very, in very large numbers and, and shells. And that reduces the complexity of what you need to do. So it is, from a, for, for in a certain sense, a godsend for a communist economy. Because that's one of the few things that you can actually map out accurately enough. And, if you can, and if, especially if somebody else is providing you with a steady stream of additional supplies... That's what you can do. But I, I don't think the monetary system is any part of the Stalin story. Um, so, so I think we need to break that history down. So I'm, I'm certainly never going to be one that will argue for a small role for money in the, in, in the role of history. I just think the book moves too quickly sure. uh, with a broad brush and simply says, you know, Robespierre and Stalin and Pol Pot. And, and I have never seen any persuasive work that the, that the Khmer Rouge's uh, brutality had much to do with the monetary system in Cambodia. Um, so I think these things are these things are. Uh, I don't think you serve your your case well if if you paint with such a broad brush. Sure. I think it's more instructive to look at the particular examples of which we know more, and that's why I spent some time on the on the German case yeah. because that one I think we we can see the mechanism pretty clearly as yeah. as indeed Keynes foresaw. We see the disruption caused by hyperinflation. We see the impact on the political circumstances. We see the emergence of a demagogue, and we ultimately see the consequences for the world of that demagogue. Uh, and so even though it's, one might say it's a kind of more modest narrative because I don't claim all the wars, uh, what I'm saying is when you really mess up money, you risk massive social disruption, 
And war is not always the outcome, but it's one of the possible outcomes of massive social disruption. Yeah, and, and I think that's pretty convincing. Um, and, and you spoke about Keynes, who is an, who's a frightfully important figure in economics, especially monetary uh, economics. Yes. And I just quickly wanted us to touch a little bit on Keynes, um, because he, as you accurately said earlier, gets um, dragged through the mud, shall we say, mm. in this book. Uh, Correct. Um, and, and I'm assuming you would argue unreasonably so. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think let's talk a bit about um, the legacy uh, okay. of, of Keynes. Uh, and, and, and let me start off by saying I'm not a Keynesian. Sure. Um, uh, so it's very rarely that I get to be in the role of defending Keynes in any discussion. Um, I am, in fact, would regard myself as an intellectual opponent of much of Keynesianism. But the, the, the way it's presented in the book is not right. Sure. <laughs> so the first thing you have to say about Keynes is he is a front-rank economist. He is at the very leading edge of, e of economics. He's an enormously important figure in the history of economics. Um, and to portray him as not a student of economics is simply not correct. Um, and, and it's not, when I say that, I, it is hard to imagine any actual economist of, of any stature who would not list Keynes amongst the top three most important economists yeah. of all times. Yeah. Um, and that includes his intellectual opponents like Milton Friedman. Unquestionably, Friedman rates Keynes amongst the top economists of all times. Um, and of course, it includes modern Nobel Prize winners and so on. It, it, he's really, his position is not, um, is not contested in terms of its impact. What we contest are specific um, theories that he had, and, um, and we certainly contest some of his policy recommendations. But that he was a leading economist, and in, in, in some important sense, the leading economist, especially during the 1930s and 40s, um, it, it would be hard to imagine any proper ranking of economists that would not place him at the top of the pile, or at least in the top three, no yeah. question about it. So very important uh, economist, Im immense influence on the subsequent development uh, of economics. Um, so, so I think in that respect he is important. He's also important for our discussion because he's a scholar of monetary economics. So he is, it's not just the book that I mentioned to you, which is a really, it's a, he, the, the economic consequences of the piece is a, is a tract to appeal to the public. So it's not really an academic book, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of public intellectualism. But he, he writes uh, his treatise on money in the 1920s, which is a really dense theoretical treatment of monetary economics. And then, of course, the general theory in, the 19, of, in, the 19, uh, in 1936. Um, and monetary arguments are at the core of the general theory. Um, uh, and, and it is because he believes there is a malfunction in the in the monetary system, that he has certain policy recommendations as well. So so monetary arguments are really core. And and after the war, when Keynes was highly influential in the reconstruction of the world economy post Second World War, and uh, he was highly instrumental in creating the the modern system with the World Bank and an IMF, which are all attempts to create a stable post war financial system. Now. In retrospect, we don't think those things worked so well. Yeah. We certainly don't think the exchange rate mechanism that he favoured, this system of a fixed but adjustable exchange rates, was such a brilliant idea. 
But I say that to in, to indicate to you how influential he was, yeah. and also how involved he was with monetary questions. Yeah, and I don't think that any one of his uh, intellectual opponents, um, or, or at least let me not say anyone, they probably are those who berate him and think he was no good, but certainly not the ones that I take a liking right. to. So uh, Hayek, for instance, mm. who had those famous debates with him. Correct. Um, he, he would also concede that Keynes was a frightfully important economist. Yeah. Um, but I, I think while we're on this Hayekian trend uh, and while we're talking about the legacy of Keynes, is it fair to then judge him on, say, his work that you have cited that he did in the 1930s and 1940s? Because the argument that, uh, or, or at least the quarrel uh, that Hayek had with him was the long-term outlook mm -hmm. of some of the things that he was proposing. And are we now at that long-term that Hayek was speaking of then. He wrote a very uh, interesting uh, paragraph or phrase, sentence in his book called A Tiger by the Tail, uh, which reads, we now have a tiger by the tail. How long can this inflation continue? If the tiger or inflation is freed up, he will eat us up. Yet if he runs faster and faster while we desperately hold on, we are still finished. I'm glad I won't be there to see the final outcome. It's very apocalyptic in its description. But I, I think while we're talking about the legacy of Keynes, is it fair to look at it from a parochial uh, lens uh, of the 1930s and 1940s? Or should we look at it over the long term that his, or a lot of his um, you know, intellectual opponents yeah. were saying would or the consequences of his actions would then start unraveling. I, I think you're right. I think we should look at it over the long term, and, and over the long term, um, many of his, especially of his policy prescriptions, turns out uh, to have had uh, at least outcomes that he would not have appreciated, that we now regard as adverse. Um, and that is why his, there is, I would say, substantial doubt about the accuracy of the full Keynesian package of macroeconomic policy management. I mean, so adherents of that full package are few and far between now, um, uh, because you're right, we've seen this play out over many decades, um, and, and it didn't play out as he foresaw. So I, I'm, I'm happy to agree with that. The, I mean, you, see, you wrote such a beautiful uh, quote from, from Hayek, and of course, Hayek also wrote wrote Serfdom in the same period, and again, it's a it's really a, a book to appeal to the public, and it's a caution against the sort of Keynesian vision of an ever more involved state. Oh, but we also know that if yeah. we judge, you know, I'm I'm a massive fan of Hayek's, but but even I have to admit that Hayek exa exaggerated the story in the road to Serfdom. It turns out that the the Keynesian intervention in the economy did not lead to inevitable socialism and stagnation in the developed world. At least not yet. You know, it hasn't yet, but it's been a long time. And um, uh, the the mechanism, so, so, so when he describes us as having a tiger by the tail the moment we embark on this, he is, he is speaking hyperbolically. Mm. Um, and, and what both, he, you know, him and Keynes uh, both failed to acknowledge also our, our ability to change tack. So um, we, we walked along a pretty Keynesian path until the mid-1970s. And then both due to the evidence and due to scholarship of, of people like Milton Friedman, we changed tack. We saw that it wasn't playing out as well as we thought it would, and we moved in a direction that was more Hayekian, more 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 monetarist from the mid 1970s onwards. So would this uh, be with people like Margaret yeah, Thatcher and correct. Ronald Reagan? And and so, um, so it's not inevitable. So so you know when we use images like the tiger, it, it seems like once you've grabbed it, it is going to eat you. Mm. 
Well, not in a dynamic economy. In a dynamic economy, we have we we, we can call it time out and get off the tiger. Uh, but there is a you know there's a there's a beautiful um, a letter exchange between um, Hayek and, and, and Keynes that I find extremely revealing um, because they respected each other personally. They were not in on on uh, one might say in a bad footing at the personal level. And Hayek was working in London at the time of the Great Depression when Keynes was writing the General Theory, and um, and after its publication, um, Hayek ri- writes to to Keynes and and it's it's a compliment about the book but they but he also indicates where they disagree and um, and then Keynes, ri- Keynes writes this beautiful letter back and, uh, and 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 he writes back to congratulate Hayek on the road to serfdom again it's an odd congratulations but he says hey, look I like the book it's just that I think where we disagree is um, that whereas you would like less planning you Hayek would like less planning I Keynes would like to see more planning. Um, and why? Because uh, whereas you think more planning is the road to hell, I think that if the planning is done by people, and this is the wonderful phrase, people with right moral thinking, mm. then we can actually solve society's problems. Now that, I think, reveals much of the difference between the two. Both of them see the potential danger in society-wide intervention. Both see that it can go really wrong. Keynes is persuaded that as long as it's clever and right moral people like himself, then we will do it well. And Hayek says that's too much power to put in the hands of anybody. Yeah, and that actually reminds me, uh, that that disagreement of theirs reminds me of a book that was written by Thomas Sowell. I believe it's called uh, Conflict and Visions or something along those lines. But it's a book in which he describes the two main um, uh, visions, so to speak. And he is very quick to outline in the introduction of that book that it isn't to be viewed as a dichotomy, but rather as a continuum. Um, so people fall somewhere on that you know, continuum. And he says that there's the constrained vision, which is constrained by the fallibility of mankind. Uh, and then there's the unconstrained vision, which sees itself unconstrained by the fallibility of mankind. So that would be, at least in part, the... Correct. The, the point that Keynes took in that argument to say that there are people who, in spite of their, um, you know, fallibilities, will be able to steer us in the right direction. But then the unconstrained vision would fundamentally argue that it, it is not the case. Human nature is fundamentally flawed. And so what we need are decentralized systems that would work from the bottom up um, to ensure that power is decentralized as far as possible. And while we're talking about power being decentralized, I'd like us to talk about that wonderful essay that Hayek wrote called The Use of Knowledge in Society, which we briefly talked about before we recorded that podcast last time. And I was damned that we didn't put it in the podcast um, because I really think that you had some very interesting things to say about it. Um, So I I think while we're still talking about this decentralization and centralization notion, um, I, I think that this essay fits very powerfully um, into at least what describes certainly my mode of thinking uh, and the Hayekian spirit or the Austrian spirit, which was embodied by people like von Mises and, of course, yes. Friedrich Hayek. Yes, and, and it is a brilliant essay, become one of the most important papers in economics um, and one of the few papers in economics that became more important over time. So it had almost no impact when it was published in 1946 and it has now become one of the most important papers in modern economics. So uh, really rare for uh, an academic paper to emerge uh, f- 40, 50 years later 
and to be rediscovered and to be appreciated for the astonishing insight that it had. But um, such is the case with a lot of Hayek's work. Eh? Yes, so you're right. Certainly Hayek has become um, a much more important economist in the last 30 years than he was in the previous 30 years. Mm. Um, and uh, it was a pretty lonely time for him in, in, the, in the latter part of his life because he really only got acknowledgement right at the end. Um, he is a giant of 20th century economics. There's no question about it. And we know it now better than we did back in the 20th century. Um, in the paper, uh, The Use of Knowledge in Society, he reframes the economic question. Um, from a certain technical perspective, scarcity is the core feature, um, not just of the economy, but of human society. Lord Robin said it, says it very beautifully. He says, our perspective is that we've been turned out of paradise. Um, we, we have to choose the application of our resources and our most fundamental resources resource is our time. We can't avoid but to make decisions with our time and so too with all our other resources. So we live in a world of scarcity and what makes our actions consequential is scarcity. If we, if we had infinite time at our disposal and infinite resources, then nothing much that we did would matter. Um, so right. our lives are consequential because we live in this tension of scarcity. And, and that, that's the world in which economics emerged as an, as an intellectual activity. Mm. Uh, but Hayek says you, you should not um, narrow economics to questions of satisfying unlimited wants with limited means, which is a sort of standard undergraduate textbook yeah. definition of economics. I was about to say. He says what you should do is you should think of economics as the subject that studies how we cooperate to solve problems of production and exchange in the economy. That, that motive that Adam Smith called truck, barter, and trade, our propensity to cooperate with each other. And that is a very deep economic insight that goes back, as, as I mentioned to you, to Adam Smith. And it, it goes back to the intellectual tradition that gave um, also that from which Adam Smith emerged in the 18th century because he doesn't just pop out of nowhere. Is part of what we call the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, and the Scottish Enlightenment is a part of the Enlightenment that emphasizes uh, the limitations of rationality, the importance of rationality, its limitations, as well as the extent to which we live and work in a society. Um, uh, so it's not about individual rationality, it's about rationality in a particular society. And, uh, uh, and Smith's observations about our propensity to truck, barter, and trade, and elsewhere in the theory of moral sentiments, he says we strive not only to be loved, but to be lovely, and lovely in 18th century uh, English in that period means to be morally attractive. Mm. Um, uh, so you st so in this, in this cooperation, this truck, barter, and trade, you are not trying to exploit. You are trying to interact in such a way that the, that the person with which you are trading, whether it's the baker or the candle maker, will want to trade with you again tomorrow. Mm. And that can only happen if you do so in a morally attractive way. So, so sometimes Adam Smith is portrayed as saying what makes society work in the market is that our greed is somehow channeled in such a way that the greed of the candle maker and the greed of the baker is just finally enough balanced that, that we end up with a, with a beneficial outcome, which, as he says in The Wealth of Nations, none of the baker or the, or the candle maker intended. But if in a full reading of Smith you say, well, no, that's not actually the case. It is because we wish to interact again tomorrow 
that we don't just get an attractive outcome. We also interact with each other in an attractive way, in a morally attractive way, because otherwise you will choose to, to interact with another baker tomorrow if I, if I acted in, in, in some sort of exploitative manner with you today, if I wasn't lovely in the 18th century language uh, to you today. So, so Hayek says this is the challenge. How do, we, how do we understand this cooperation in society in which our knowledge is of the total system is highly limited, in which our interactions are local? I, you and I are interacting locally here, but we're going to podcast this, and so the impact will be much more extended. Um, and, and these are features of what we now understand to be complex systems. So local interactions with non-linear effects elsewhere in the system, which is very hard to foresee from the local interaction. Mm. So we've got knowledge locally, we act locally, the impact is, is massively expanded in a way that's hard for us to foresee. And it's certainly hard for us to plan the system-wide impact of what we do locally. And that's the challenge of economics, is to understand the consequences of this kind of complex system with local interaction, local knowledge, but non-linear impacts mm. in the rest of the system. And once you get that perspective, and of course the price mechanism in Hayek's essay is, the cru is crucial to spreading information in this, in this complex web of interaction. Once you take that, you appreciate that system. You will understand why it is so difficult to plan at the scale of the economy. And, and that paper of him was written as part of a big debate in economics, and we call it the socialist calculation debate, which was a big debate about whether you can, with a well-meaning socialist government, do as well as a capitalist economy from a production and distribution perspective. Uh, and it really was a, a very intense debate. And at the time, some very respected economists thought that you might well be able to do so. An economist like Abba Lerner, for example, thought that you could. Now, Hayek was at the leading, um, was leading the sort of economists who argued that you could not. And the use of knowledge in society is a critical paper to demonstrate why you haven't got that. And, and the reason you, you, you can't do it is because we haven't got system-wide knowledge. The, the knowledge only emerges from our interaction at the local level. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to conclude this long answer of mine <laughs> with one of my favorite episodes. Uh, and that is the attempt by the Chilean government in the early 1970s uh, to manage their economy with the cutting-edge technology of the time. So they, they acquired the best IBM mainframe computer of the day. Uh, and they called it CyberSyn. And they built a control, control room for it. And this was, a period, this was in the period of, of brief socialist uh, um, government in, in Chile in the early 1970s. And so now they were going to do it in a scientific way what was done in a totalitarian way in, in Russia. Um, and so this was the great experiment. And what, what did you have to do? So every company in the country, every evening had to telex. This was the technology of the time, even before taxes. You used a telex machine. You had to telex your production outcomes for that day as well as your needs for the rest day to CyberSyn. All of it had to telex in, and then CyberSyn would crunch through the night, and they would telex you back your instructions for the next day. Only problem is, nobody in a factory has any idea of what the factory actually produced that day, mm. and even worse, what they need for the next day. 
but they had to telex the information. So they did. They telexed junk to Cybersyn. Cybersyn then very seriously crunched through the junk and sent out junk instructions for the next day. Um, and as a consequence, you had the same outcome as you had in many of the East Bloc economies. It's not that you had a relatively inefficient economy. Is it that you had chaos? Mm. Um, the, the actual production plan is totally chaotic because the information on which you base it doesn't exist. The information on which actual economic decisions make emerge from our interactions at the local level. And if you try to abstract from that and say, well, why don't we just take the information and plan and I'll send it to you, then you have then you've eliminated the system which actually generates the inflation that mm. the, the information that you need for the process. So there is no way of solving the problem at the economy-wide level. And that really is the final nail in the coffin of the of the socialist calculation debate. That's why it's become such an important paper. We realized that information economics is an important part of economics, and information is one of the things that is actually generated by the economy. So you can't abstract and say, let's let us take the information and then give it back to the economy, because then the information itself is broke. Wow. I'll stop. Sure. Uh, and, and as you, of course, know, I'm a huge admirer of Hayek, um, and I think this is when I really got to understand um, what he meant by, um, you know, the curious task of economics is to mm -hmm. demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. Um, but, but I think we've done a little bit of an injustice to Mises, who, on whose shoulders uh, mm -hmm. it was possible for Hayek to, to emerge. Um, but, but, but I'm assuming the listeners are probably wondering why we had to talk about prices. And here is where I tied back in with the subject of money. Um, so you admit, Prof, that um, it is not possible to centrally plan um, you know, the, or to centrally coordinate the operations of society yes. and that you need some sort of decentralized system to coordinate all of this knowledge that we have mm -hmm. for that, so that society can remain operational. Um, so if you admitted with such, uh, you know, with goods and services, etc., surely then you would also uh, take that same uh, assessment right up to the level of monetary economics. Um, could it not at least in part be argued that on that same um, you know, monetary policy level that the same argument would apply because central banks are by their very nature centrally planned institutions. Sure. Um, and, you know, as Hayek pointed out, as Mises actually pointed out in the theory of money and credit, um, that, you know, you run into the same problem. So could decentralized uh, systems or currencies not answer some of these questions that we have spoken about now? I know it was a rather yes. round no, and securitous point. Uh, um, and, and we've had it. Uh, even in this country. I mean, we didn't always have a central bank. The South African Reserve Bank is 100 years old today. So before that, we didn't have a central bank. And what we had is that uh, the banks at the time issued their own currency. We had what we, what we used to call free banking. So free banking is where banks introduce um, bank notes and coins, and you have different ones. You have Standard Bank, and you have the Bank, Cape of, the, 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 the bank of the Cape of the Good Hope issuing different notes, and we in society, we find a way to use all of these different notes that are in circulation. And uh, In fact, you, there's beautiful economic history on it. You even eventually get some system of exchange rates between them because not all the banks are equally trustworthy. Yeah. So it may be that a pound from Standard Bank is worth uh, fifty from the Bank of the Cape of the Good Hope. Um, and, and in fact, in our own history... My colleague Johan Furia has shown how in the 18th century there was a, um, a, 
a very famous butcher in the Overberg, who was so established and such a on, and, and was a butcher on such a big scale that the IOUs that he issued from the butchery functioned to some limited extent as as money in the Overberg. So in a period of free, you can have free money, you can have you can have monetary assets that are not issued by a central bank. There's no question of that. Um, there is a difference between Mises and Hayek on this point. So, so for Mises, this is a recommendation. He says, why don't we try to get back to that kind of system? Hayek, on the other hand, says it's not necessary to go there as long as you organize the monetary system well within the economy. You can have a centralized monetary system. So, so Hayek says the, 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 use of knowledge, the use of knowledge in society does not require free banking. Um, so, uh, and it is because Hayek uses the, what he called the concept of areas of planning. He says not everything in the economy is literally a market. Um, within a company, for example, you don't typically have a market. You have a hierarchy within a company, and, and Hayek calls a company an area of, of planning. And, and, but that, but it, what is cru crucially important for a market economy to function is that these areas of planning must stand in a competitive relationship with others so that they can jointly generate the information that is so crucial for society. Mm. So if you have just one planner in the economy, you don't get it. And that's why the socialist calculation debate ended in that way. But he doesn't say that there's no planning in the economy. He says there's lots of planning in the economy. Uh, and certainly in every single firm, you've got an area of planning. In every single household, you've got an area of planning. Um, but between these areas of planning, you have the, the, the forces of competition that provide the feedback about whether our plans are good or bad. Right. And, and, and that's why if you do economy-wide plan, you don't have the feedback because you've just got your own plan. There's nothing to tell you whether it's a good or a bad plan. Sure. Um, uh, and, and what he said is that the monetary system can be an area of planning. So it's a network that provides us with a means of exchange and a store of value. And to the extent that it's done well, it allows the feedback to emerge in the rest of the economy. We, in other words, we can see the price signals, we can see the quantity signals, uh, and we can respond to those. Um, it, isn't it isn't required that money itself be one of the things that emerge competitively for it to function like that. Um, but he was not, he was not naive. Uh, he, he was very conscious of the fact that very oftentimes central banks mess it up. Um, so, and, 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 and I share his perspective on that. I'm, uh, I'm a critic of central banks who manage money unsoundly, but like Hayek, I don't think it's an inevitable outcome. I think it is possible to have sound money, and I think there is the difference with Mises. I think my own reading of, of understanding of Mises is that he was much more skeptical. He, he thought the incentives around a central bank were poor enough that you were almost always going to end up with unsound money. Um, and so and so that's where I, I think I fall with Hayek and on the opposite side of the argument. Sure. And as you mentioned earlier, it's, you know, it's not always that we you know, just continue down this one trajectory and that it's possible correct. to correct course at some point. So at what point, or so would you agree that the kind of money that we have now, perhaps in a very brief answer, is mm. unsound? And that uh, you know we cannot continue living like this with the banks or the, with the central banks continuously pumping in liquidity to you know uh, as moral hazard as the phrase that you taught me earlier on in the year uh, you know to sort of dis dissuade or, or to deflect to the kind of you know incentives that we would originally expect from a marketplace. I, I certainly think the current position is untenable. Um, I I expect it will be reversed. 
that is my the position that I held earlier in our discussion as well, is I do think we've got the capacity to reverse when we see mistakes emerging. Yeah. And I am I am pretty confident that in the course of the next couple of years we'll see the large central banks of the world um, reverse their current massively expanded portfolios of assets in the economy. In fact, to some extent, we are already seeing it. Concerns of inflation are encouraging them in that, in that regard. I think this reversal can be very disruptive mm. for asset markets because like you, I believe that a part of what has driven asset markets to these record highs is the amount of liquidity that was pumped into the world economy. Um, and when you reverse that, it's, it's, I, I think it's inconceivable that there will not be an impact on the average level of these asset markets. It's very hard for us to foresee precisely how it will play out. And that's why I think it will be quite disruptive. Um, there was an episode in 2013. Uh, we now call it the taper tantrum. Uh, and the taper tantrum was a, a brief episode in which the Fed um, announced that they were going to taper off uh, the quantitative easing program and markets very rapidly declined. And then they reversed tack, actually. <laughs> they, kind of, they got a fright and they reversed tack. Um, uh, so, so we've already seen how disruptive it can be if you've, if you've introduced this amount of liquidity into markets and you, then you start reversing it. Uh, because now, now, now markets have to price in a different reality. Um, and what is the reality that they have to price in differently? So if you have average long-term interest rates at, say, a half a percentage point, then um, if I discount the future, if I think this half a percentage point is now the new normal for long-run interest rates for the next decade or 20 years, if I discount future profitability from firms at, at a half a percent, then I will value a firm that is only modestly profitable very highly today because I'm not discounting that profit at a very high interest rate. Right. Whereas yeah. if that interest rate returns to something more normal, now what would be a normal interest rate in the US, a kind of, if you, if you wanted to use a sort of rule of thumb, if you think of a sort of average long-run target for inflation in the order of 2%, an average outcome for the real interest rate in the US of about 2%, you get to an average bond yield in the US of 4%, not less than 1%, but 4%. Now, if I discount profitability at 4% versus a half percent per year, I get a completely different expected price earnings ratio for all the companies on the stock market. So the current PEs that you see, these very elevated PEs, 20, 30, 40, 50% of current projected earnings, is directly related to where the bond yields are currently. And if bond yields stop being half a percent, but go up to 4%, then you can't sustain PEs at the level of 40 and 50. Then the PEs come down to more normal numbers like 20 and lower, and, and that, that requires a stock market repricing. Um, and, and it's the same with property prices. You get a property price repricing, stock market repricing. And all of this is highly disruptive because it hits the developing world differently from the yeah. developed world. Um, money flows out of the South African bond market because currently South African bonds yield 8.5% versus a half percent in the developed world. Sure. So it's attractive for international bond investors to kind of extract some yield from our bonds despite the massive fiscal risk of our government. But if it's 4 versus 8%, then the risk return calculation is very different. Then the 40% of South African bonds that belong to international investors might well leave the country. The RAND declines rapidly and our, our interest rates no longer remain at 8.5%, but 
but go up to 12%. And if they go to 12%, the fiscal situation in our country is untenable. Um, so I think the consequences of this reversal is not just for asset markets in the developed world. It really has big consequences for the macroeconomic outlook in this country as well. And I'm assuming that on those grounds, then you would disagree um, about the efficacy of crypto perhaps being an alternative to the existing monetary regime. Um, it's, no, it's not on those grounds. I, I think... I don't think crypto solves an important problem. I think crypto is immensely interesting. Let, let, uh, we should make no mistake about that. And I've written about crypto for the last 10 years. And the underlying technology of blockchain is immensely interesting. Um, but a cryptocurrency just doesn't solve an important problem in the modern economy. Um, we have a very well-functioning payment mechanism in South Africa. The crypto payment mechanism is less efficient <laughs> than the payment mechanism that's administered by the South African Reserve Bank. So, so it's like you have a wheel and then somebody comes along and says, I've, I've discovered a new wheel, only my wheel is square. Like, you know, that's, that's not so brilliant. Yeah. Um, just because it's an independent wheel, I mean, I granted you that it's an independent wheel, but it's still a square wheel for, for something that you can do with a round wheel. Um, so it's a less efficient way of achieving what I can do more efficiently. The only thing that in South Africa makes it somewhat relevant, is exchange control. So crypto offers some way, if you want to try to evade exchange controls, then crypto is one way of trying to do it. Uh, of course, it is illegal, but it, it's a practical way to do it if you, want, if you wish to do it. But I think the way to address that is not to invent square wheels, it's to address the matter of exchange controls. To, and head on, as a policy matter, to say what we need to do is to get back to the vision that we had 20 years ago of progressively relaxing exchange controls mm -hmm. and getting rid of it as a permanent feature of our economy. That's what we did in the late 1990s, very progressively. I mean, exchange controls used to be very binding in South Africa. We relaxed them considerably, and then we stopped. And I think we just need to go back to that trajectory and relax them progressively further and further and further, um, because then we become... Uh, more normally integrated into international capital markets. And that solves the problem that we currently have to solve in an illegal way through crypto. Sure. So, and I think perhaps as a final question, because I see we've spoken for a while now, so would your views perhaps overlap with those of the Commissioner of the uh, Financial Sector Conduct Authority, Mr. Unati Kamlana, who I did have on the podcast, and he explained his stance on Bitcoin uh, and crypto in, in general. Um, and he called to question a very interesting phenomenon. Um, he said... It's quite telling, um, you know, the list of countries that have adopted uh, Bitcoin as legal tender. Do you think that that is as telling as he perhaps thinks it is? Uh, can we take something away from, uh, say, the Cubas or the uh, El Salvadors of this world who, ha who have been the first to uh, adopt <laughs> well, Bitcoin as legal he's tender? He's not wrong to say yeah. that it's a group of countries that have a pretty poor yeah. track record of managing their money. Yeah. Um, and if we had this discussion 25 years ago, what these countries would have done is to dollarize. Mm. So they'd simply either adopted as Ecuador did 20 years ago, abandon their own currency and start using the dollar. They didn't ask permission from the US. They just bought dollar reserves and they, they, they used those as their, as their currency. Or as Argentina did 30 years ago to, do, to move to what we call a currency board, in which they still issued their Argentinian peso, but for every single peso... They held a dollar in the central bank's vault. So, and it was guaranteed to be convertible. So you could, you could and any day walk with your peso to a bank in Argentina and insist on the dollar note in return for it. 
So it was a very hard peg to the dollar. So, uh, and it's because they had catastrophic inflation previously uh, in Argentina. So when you mismanage uh, your local currency, indeed, you come to the point of looking for alternatives. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, in the 90s, the alternative was always the dollar. Now there is the alternative of crypto, and it comes with the political advantage, if you're Cuba, of not having to tie yourself to the dollar, because that's just embarrassing. Um, so it seems like a non, it seems like a neutral way of solving your own mismanagement of money. But that's what it is. It is an, it, it's an attempt to find uh, a, a, a payment mechanism that isn't subject to the mismanagement that you were that you typically did. I mean, I, I did I mention to you in our previous discussion with the central bank governor of Argentina told me in in the nineties when, eh? when I met him in London, yes, and yeah. that's what he said. Right? He said, you know, we are Argentinians. We, we, we should not be allowed to manage money because we are sinners and yeah. we will sin again. Um, that's why they dollarized, or in that case, used the currency board, and that's why the Cubans adopt uh, Bitcoin or the Salvadorians. Um, uh, it doesn't have much of an implication for us yeah. because we have a very different reputation. Mm. Um, and, and that is why countries around us in the RAND monetary area, Lesotho, Namibia, Swaziland, they, their monetary decisions are taken by us. They have no monetary independence. They are part of the RAND monetary area, and it works for them. So it, it would be a terrible mistake for Swaziland to somehow announce monetary independence from South Africa. They've got no track record to manage their, their money as soundly as we have done. So it benefits them yeah. to simply use us. Um, now, whether they use crypto, whether they use the RAND, um, what they want is a stable payment mechanism, and, and I think... The RAND is a more efficient payment mechanism than would be crypto for Swaziland. Yeah, so that's very interesting because it seems to me um, that a lot of these governments are starting to clamp down. The Cubans, for instance, yeah. are starting to clamp down on the use of Bitcoin, uh, at least within their sure. uh, sovereign borders. Um, and, and that to me seems a bit of a disservice to those people because as you accurately said, uh, the reason that people are taking to crypto so much is because they are dissatisfied sure. with the monetary management yes. um, in, in their particular country, and crypto is this escape for them. Yes. Uh, I had, interestingly, Russell Lamberti, who co-wrote When Money Destroys Nations, here to have a, a discussion with, um, and he noted um, that in Zimbabwe, when you know there was hyperinflation, the RAND, uh, yeah. among a few other currencies, yes. was used as legal tender there. But it seems to me that the clamping down of the use of alternative uh, you know, mediums of exchange is is to clamp down on the freedom um, of, of individuals, and surely we should be concerned about that. Oh, we should certainly be concerned about it, and and um, I'm not indifferent to the collapse of monetary systems. Uh, you, you're absolutely right. It's not just that lives get disrupted; is that the ability uh, f uh, for us to to foresee where we wish to go with our lives is radically compromised when you don't have the certainty of being able to use a stable monetary system. So it, it's, it certainly has bigger implications. Um, and that is why you always find societies pivoting. So in a, uh, you, you have hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, and the Zimbabweans find different ways of moving around it. When, when the Argentinian government collapsed in 2001, event, at, at one point there were 20 currencies in Argentina that sure. had emerged organically. One of them issued by a shopping center, um, who just issued, one might say, what are we going to call gift vouchers, but they're not really gift vouchers. But uh, the idea, because the, the peso had collapsed and, that, and couldn't fulfill the role of money in the lives of that local community, the local community found an alternative. Now, whether that was a, a gift voucher from the shopping center or something else, 
is it just shows you that people have find ways to work around it. Yeah. Um, and that, by the way, is a great limit on the power of governments to use the central bank to exploit through inflation individuals. So when, when inflation rises, the value of our, of our nominal assets decline. But the and, and, and government can in fact gain some resources. We call it an inflation tax. But the power of inflation tax is strictly limited. And it's limited by you and me being willing to use the money. And if if money becomes so unstable that you and I stop using rands, then the South African government lose their inflation tax revenue at the same time. So there is, a, there is a fine balance, and that's one of the reasons why, why governments are incentivized to, to try to manage their money soundly, because they get a small but non-trivial amount of, of what you call seniorage revenue, which is the basis of the inflation tax, right. seniorage revenue, but you lose that. If you lose the confidence of your population in your currency, then it's not just that, that you lose the, the organization of the payment system, it's that you also lose your seniorage revenue. Um, so the demand side of currency should not be left uh, out of uh, out of the of, of the discussion, um, and and we as a population express our demand for rands or dollars in the in the currency or the asset we choose to use as money, um, and the central bank can only ever affect the supply side. Um, they cannot force us to use money, just like the designers of games could not force individuals not to introduce a monetary asset in. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is incumbent upon uh, the existence of other, you know, of alternatives and for the public to know about these yes. alternatives. And that's one of my big passions, financial education and ensuring yeah. that people actually understand what is going on in not jargonistic, you know, phrases or terms. Um, but I think we've had a very, very interesting conversation. It's gone an hour and 30 minutes now, I see, by far the longest podcast I've had on the show, and I think for very, very good reason. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been hugely, hugely enjoyable. Um, I don't know if you have any final words, Prof. I think we've spoken about quite a bit, but I think it'd be nice to let you have the last let, word. Let, let me say a final word. I find uh, crypto extremely interesting as an asset. It's undoubtedly an asset. Um, one of the ways you know it doesn't function as money is if you relate it to our earlier part of the discussion where I said the value of money needs to change at a low frequency. And as you know, the value of Bitcoin, as an example of crypto, changes at a pretty high frequency. Um, so it is a very interesting asset. It's built on an extremely interesting technology. But as we sit here today, it doesn't function as money because it has become a high-frequency asset. And that, at least, like I said, in the current experience, precludes it from fulfilling the role of money. All right. Well, I think that that's a pretty somber note for some of my Bitcoin fans. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, really, really enjoyable conversation. And just a quick note for the listeners. Uh, we are still a non-profitable organization and can only continue to exist with your support. And so if you enjoyed today's conversation and wish to support us, please head on over to our website at nmonline.co.za and click on the support option. The website will guide you from there. You can also, while you're at it, check out our other content, which is available in the form of articles, where you can check, by the way, my trilogy of articles on my hero, Friedrich Hayek, um, for your enjoyment. So that's nmonline.co.za and the support option if you're interested in support us prof stan it's been a wonderful wonderful conversation i really hope to get to chat to you again sometime very enjoyable for me as well pillar thanks for inviting me